You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston, Big North Coast, New South Wales. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and produce these podcasts. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpai peoples of the Port Macquarie region in New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Hi, Tim. Hi, Margot. And Margot, straight away, I can see you sitting on the back veranda there, kicking back in paradise. We've got cicadas, we've got birds. Seems just right for summer 2020, really. Serenity is my, my word for 2021. 2020 has been quite the year in human history. For us in Australia, it began, well, late 2019 with intense and devastating bushfires that then segued into a global coronavirus pandemic. For Tim and me here in Victoria, we endured months of lockdown and very stringent restrictions, including mandated face masks. In the USA Republic, a presidential election like no other, with Donald Trump using the pandemic as part of his political and culture wars in the United States. As we all know by now, he lost to Joe Biden, but is now peddling outlandish conspiracy theories of widespread election fraud there in the US. Elsewhere in the world were similarly troubled, tragedies, tensions, transformations. We all in developed countries at least live in media-saturated societies marked by information surpluses. The digital revolution rolls on. Traditional or legacy news media, largely funded by advertising, have been tipped upside down. Business models for journalism have been shredded. Some outlets have adapted. Many have failed. And the shakeout continues. From about 2006, social media emerged as a pervasive part of our mediascapes, Twitter and Facebook chief amongst them, of course. Mobile devices shifted the consumption goalposts. Mass media have been steadily surpassed by non-scheduled media consumption, on-demand content. So, we here in the Transit Zone thought with such a roiling year for events natural, political and social and the corresponding media and journalistic challenges and responses, we needed a debrief and a stock take before we say goodbye to 2020. And our guest to help us do that is Margaret Simons, writer, journalist, and media researcher, analyst, and commentator. Prolific is the perfect word for Meg. Her output has been nothing short of extraordinary. There are unconfirmed reports that she sleeps, sometimes. (laughs) Her seminal tome on the Australian media was The Content Makers, Understanding the Media in Australia, published back in 2007, interestingly, before pervasive social media really took hold in our lives. There were many other books and articles on the media and journalism before that and to follow. She's written two major biographies too, one on Malcolm Fraser that she co-wrote with Fraser and another of Penny Wong more recently. Also a book about business and media mogul Kerry Stokes. Meg is also an academic and researcher. She was director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne and has taught many an emerging journalist, many of whom we see on our screens and read their copy right now, in the traditional and newer demands of our trade or profession. Along the way, she's garnered a swag of prestigious awards and nominations for her writing and for her journalism. Today, Margaret Simons is a freelancer writing for newspapers, magazines, journals, and using various digital platforms for her own branded outputs. Meg, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. 
Let's go straight to something that's quite recent in your journalistic experience. All three of us were really fascinated when you were reporting during a very dire period. You remember it well, I'm sure it's right in your backyard there where you live in Flemington. The towers, the nearby towers that were locked down in an earlier phase just before the really big lockdown started here in Melbourne. You used the Twitter platform as a journalist and we all read those tweets and read those real life reports on Twitter. Take us back to how that emerged in your journalistic life and what it was like to actually do those reports. Well, a few people have asked me about this, Peter, and I'm aware that when I tell the story, it sounds as though I, you know, had a much more considered decision-making process than is really the case. Um, One always tends to reconstruct these things in retrospect. But I was watching Daniel Andrews' press conference on that Sunday. My suburb of Flemington was already locked down. That was the stage of Melbourne's lockdown when certain postcodes were subjected to stricter restrictions. And we were waiting to hear both the the numbers for the day and also the expectation of further restrictions. And he announced that from memory it was about four o'clock. It was one of the times that his press conference went very late in the afternoon, which was usually a sign of bad news, as it was on this occasion. And I heard him say that the Flemington and North Melbourne public housing towers would be locked down immediately and that the people in them would not be allowed to leave their home for any reason which was extraordinary. Um, And as you indicated, the Flemington public housing estate is literally, I mean, I'm looking at the towers as I look out my study window now, it's literally a block from where I live. My children went to the local high school, so their classmates, many of them lived on the estate. I've been in and out of those towers over the years for various reasons. And I have reported on them previously, in particularly a long history of conflict with the police and over-policing of those communities. And I remember quite distinctly, I, I sort of went cold with the shock of it, that this could be done. I mean, it's a terrifying thing. Terrifying that the Premier thought it was justified, terrifying that it was going to be done. And the next thing I knew, I was halfway down the road with my phone in my hand on my way there. But to the extent that I had any thinking behind it at all, it was something along the lines of the police are going to be there, this could be really bad, and it will go better if there is media there. As I say, I think I'm reconstructing some of that thinking in retrospect rather than actually thinking at the time. So I got there. It was just on dusk. The police were already there in force. People were coming back into the estate, having you know been out driving, visiting relatives and so on. And the police, it's just a massive police presence. Hard to describe how overwhelming the police presence was. And I just started taking photos and tweeting them. Somewhere in there, Lenore Taylor, the editor of The Guardian, rang me and said, is there any way you can get to these housing estates? And I said, I'm actually there already. And um, she commissioned me to write for The Guardian as well. And I was tweeting initially photos to The Guardian. It took about an hour and a half for other media to arrive and then for the police media section to arrive and start trying to corral us. But by then I had donned my little old lady persona and was just sort of stooging around and so managed to avoid being corralled into a little roped-off area. It was shocking, you know, there were people driving in. I remember one person saying, oh, look, I've left my kids with their grandma who lives off the estate. Can I go and get them? And fortunately, one of the cops said yes and allowed her to sort of do a U-turn and go and get the kids and come back. Other people had heard about it. They had been text messages sent and some of them had raced down to the supermarket to get groceries. Others never came home until the end of the lockdown. 
and others knew nothing about it but thought there must have been a major crime or something of that sort. They had no idea what had happened. And it was really very traumatic. I mean, leaving aside whether it was justified on public health grounds, I, I think it probably was. But the implementation was appalling. Even the police had only had a couple of hours' notice. The Department of Health and Human Services, which has covered itself in disglory ever since, took days just to be able to get people food into the towers. And, you know, these are large families, many of them African-Australians, and there's a cultural thing there that you tend to buy and cook on the same day. They don't tend to have deep pantries. So people were running out of food. People couldn't get medication. And the families and friends of these people were trying to deliver food and medication. And DHHS was saying, oh, but you don't have a safe food handling certificate, so you can't deliver food. Or, you know, how do we know this medication is actually prescribed? Just putting endless barriers in their way, which led to tensions, which led to conflicts with the police. Although generally speaking, I have to say the police behave better than DHHS. Really, they just began to get their act together when the lockdown ended, which was uh, nine days later. And then there was a longer period for the North Melbourne, a particular tower in North Melbourne that had been identified as having a high number of cases. So I just decided I was going to stay in the sense of, you know, being there every day, which I did. And I filed some stories for The Guardian, quite a few stories for The Guardian, both stories I wrote by myself and also filing bits and pieces for stories that were being written more generally about corona. I began to maintain a Twitter news service, which initially, as I say, was just that thing of the cops need to know they're being watched, but developed into a news service for people in the local area, both the residents of the flats, who I regard as my main audience, but also the wider Flemington, North Melbourne community, the people outside the flats. And then as it gradually became clear and has proved useful since, a lot of people inside DHHS and the various support agencies also began to follow me. And some of them were also DMing me with information. And, you know, those connections have proved very useful in my reporting going forward. Meg, that idea about you not being corralled, you being, you know, disguised as a, as a citizen, did you manage to maintain that the whole way? <laughs> Not all the way. I mean, the whole thing is, was a dog's breakfast in the organisations. There were times when access to the estate was heavily restricted. But of course, because I live in the area, I mean, I, li I walk through that estate most days. It's my regular daily walk goes through the estate. And so, of course, I know all the ways in. And the police, there was only one day on which the police actually had those normal ways in that the neighbourhood would use efficiently blocked. But they did try to prevent media access at various times and other times not. So it was very inconsistent. Yes, I mean, I didn't have a dog to walk, just put on my usual walking gear. I, I only had, you know, my phone on me and a notebook, which I kept in my pocket, unless it was something I needed to note down. And most of the time I just passed as, you know, as I say, my little old lady persona, which I've discovered is very handy as a reporter as I get older. <laughs> Meg, I read those tweets and followed you assiduously as you were doing that reporting. I'd love to now hear what you think about Twitter as a platform, as a journalistic tool. As you well know, we've only had Twitter since about 2007. I went to a conference I remember well at the ABC in Sydney in 2009. It was about social media for journalists. What I encountered there from many well-known journalists now using Twitter was great resistance and scepticism about the tool. But of course, that changed. And of course, then we got Trump as well, using Twitter as his personal broadcast channel to the world, amplified by mainstream media moment by moment. But how do you see now, looking back over that decade, Twitter as a tool for journalists? How has it evolved? Well, I've always liked Twitter. I think I was an early adopter of Twitter. 
and I still like it. And particularly, you know, the Flemington case, it was what I had. I had it in my pocket at the time when I was running down the hill. I had no commission from anybody to report it. And I was able to do it straight away. If I had had a commission, you know, maybe I wouldn't have live tweeted. Maybe I'd have saved it from some other method. But it is a platform. You know, it's it's a platform like any other. It's not a thing in itself. It's got certain what the academics would call affordances. That is, you know, things that you can use. It depends very much on who's using it. For research, for another thing I'm doing at the moment, I've been hanging out on Parler, which is the new uncensored right-wing Twitter, and it's a very different cohort, and they use it very differently from most of the people I follow on Twitter. It's like the telephone. It has affordances. It enables certain things to be done, but it's human beings who use it, and Twitter can be used for you know both goodness and evil. I do think that we've observed in the last couple of years an increasing polarisation, In the early days of Twitter, I found, and this may just be my own experience, one never knows because, of course, one's captured by the algorithms and one's own followers. In the early days, I remember being able to have really good debates and discussions on Twitter with the feeling that, you know, people were genuinely open to ideas and to changing their minds. Increasingly, these days, people already have their minds made up and all you get if you try to discuss is abuse. And there is an increasing amount of abuse, anecdotally, particularly aimed at women and women journalists, and I find that deeply unappealing. But that's not Twitter. That is the people on Twitter. (laughs) Um, Twitter's just a platform, a communications platform. We can use it as we wish, and people do. Meg, as we listen to you, we can still hear just the mere vestiges of your English accent. I'm personally quite fascinated by your drive, your intense curiosity. You came to Australia. I'm not even sure what age you came to Australia. Looking at you now as you're heading into your 60s, still really hitting your straps as a, as a journalist, as a writer, as a researcher, as an academic, and as a commentator. What is the underlying drive in you that's produced this extraordinary output? What's no. driven your journalistic career? Well, I've no idea, Peter. I mean, you make it sound like there's some game plan. You know, I just keep doing stuff. <laughs> I emigrated. I had my eighth birthday on the ship on the way out. In 1968, I'm now 60. My father was an academic, which meant we went back to the UK when he had sabbatical at various times, which probably refreshed the accent, and I was raised in Adelaide. I think you put your finger on it when you said curiosity. I've always been really nosy, and I've always wanted to understand things, and I can't remember a time when I didn't write, you know, like I was writing even before I could write, if you know what I mean. So I think it was that combination of things. But I originally went into journalism. First job was on a little country paper in South Australia. And then I got a cadetship at the age. I knew I'd found what I wanted to do in the first week on that country newspaper. I was covering the local swimming carnival. And I went to the local government meeting and I interviewed the cops. And there was some girl who just had a motorbike accident. And I interviewed her in hospital. And I just loved it. Loved that license to satisfy my curiosity. And, uh, you know, I've just kept on doing that, really, as well as trying to make enough living to raise a couple of kids and live a reasonable life. Mark and I share something. We both grew up in Brisbane during the Joe Bichelke-Peterson time and the Fitzgerald Inquiry. I think you and Margot intersected during that period, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, we were working out didn't in the same you, office. We met then, and the Courier-Mail, you know, I think might have heard the Weekly Times then, but it was in bed with Sir Joe, and it was antagonistic towards Fitzgerald. And luckily, I got picked up from the Courier by Fairfax and thrown across to the Times on Sunday and ended up basically full-time Fitzgerald. Meg was uh, full-time Fitzgerald for the age, 
and Greg Roberts. Greg Roberts, Roberts was was full time Fitzgerald in Crow for the Sydney Morning Herald, and we had an absolute ball. Meg was so good that Tony Fitzgerald asked her to help him write the report. Before you go on with that, I think you've just (laughs) given a great example of the changes in the media because Margot and I both worked in the Brisbane office. The Brisbane Bureau. There were two Australian Financial Review correspondents. Yep. There was Margot for and Greg, and Greg Turnbull, Turnbull for the Times so on two for the National Times. I was there just for the age. The Sydney yep. Morning Herald had its own correspondent as well, yep. and they posted Evan Witten up to write colour. There is now no Brisbane Bureau. All of those jobs are gone. Yep, and I tell you what, you, you talk about the Southerners, but it took Chris Masters coming up for Four Corners to do the Moonlight State. I mean, we would never have got a Royal Commission without a strong Southern media being very interested so the old days, um, they produced the goods for Queensland. Yeah, but if you want to see a very good example of how it's hollowed out, and this is 30 years ago, of course, not just 10, but there is now no Brisbane correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. None, none. And there is no freelance budget either. Yeah, and so the, the Career Mail is it? Yeah. Murdoch's Career Mail. Meg, I've been obsessed with US politics for five years. You probably have a bit too, but in the course of that, got a amazing amount of new information about the media and how it's working and isn't working. Yesterday, I went on YouTube for the lead up to the big rally and there's Right Side News, OAM, Newsmax, and literally just in shock at the pure propaganda of the lead in. And then, of course, you get to Trump and and everything he's doing. Then you read, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times reports, and it's just, your head explodes. Clearly got to the stage in America where there are two realities and they don't meet at all. Really scary for democracy for all sorts of reasons. I really like your take on, given that everyone says, you know, we're about five, ten years behind and now we're five, maybe three, maybe two, what is different about us that protects us from that apocalypse? And what do you think we need to do to enhance our protection so we save ourselves from this? Well, I think there's a few things that do, I hope, make us different. While, as you say, it's commonly said we're you know, five years behind the US, and in many ways that's true. You know, it's not always true. It's not completely true, I suppose, is a way of putting it. So one of the things that makes us different, I think, is our history. And I'm talking here about the modern, largely European history of Australia. We weren't founded in a welter of revolutionary fervour and idealism. In so many ways, that's a disadvantage. You know, we lack a First Amendment, for example, guaranteeing freedom of speech and all sorts of other ways in which one can talk about the disadvantages of that. But I'm actually beginning to think that there are some benefits in having been founded in an act of pragmatic bureaucracy rather than in revolutionary fervour. We don't have those deep evangelical, puritanical and revolutionary fervour in the US, which I think in the last few years has led to us seeing a really sort of extremist divide emerging in the US. Now, it's here as well. The thing I'm researching at the moment is the extent to which this is true here. And certainly QAnon, for example, has many followers in Australia, including where you live, Margot. It seems to be a bit of a hotspot of QAnon. You know, it's here as well, but it doesn't seem to have taken hold in anything like the same way. And you can see it in our response to the pandemic. There's lots of micro stories within the big one, but the big story is that all of our political leaders of all sides of politics have basically followed the science. 
with more or less enthusiasm. And as I say, there's lots of micro stories within that big story. And that is a huge difference from the States where the pandemic response has become a political issue, even the wearing of a mask and so on. So I think we are different. The other thing which makes us different, and this is more recent, is I don't think you can underestimate the impact of a public broadcaster. And there's quite a lot of research in Europe which shows that in a very fragmented media scene, you know, with extremes of left and right within the media, that those countries that have a public broadcaster, everybody consumes bits of the public broadcaster. They might be staying with their sort of Fox News equivalent or whatever for much of the time, but they will also absorb content from the public broadcaster. And that, of course, tends to reduce the polarisation and the extent to which nobody's talking to each other. I think Australia's strong tradition of public broadcasting has had a big impact. We know that it is the most trusted news media outlet in Australia by country mile and has been for a long while. And also, I was looking at circulation statistics just the other week, and in terms of digital sites, it is by a country mile the most read or most accessed followed by news.com.au. There's quite a gap between them. That has a, a moderating effect. Everybody will tend to be impacted in some way by ABC content. And I think, obviously, I think that's a very good thing, a very important thing. Australia would be a different country without the ABC, I think. Yeah, so to me, the ABC's got a couple of things. It's got, it's all over Australia. So you're getting a regional voice to the cities. But secondly, it seems to ground the country in a fact-based world. And as you know, the ABC is accountable for telling the truth. I just believe that is the crucial reason why Murdoch has over many years attacked the ABC, sought privatisation, sought to delegitimise. And these days, I can sort of see in Australia almost a a partnership between Murdoch and the coalition, whereas in America it's almost as though Fox and the right-wing media has more power than the Republican Party. Do you see that we could somehow stop Murdoch getting to, to that level of power where he is actually trying to impose an alternative reality like he has in the States? And is there any hope the Turnbull-Rudd attempt to get some accountability? Is there any hope that, that we could stop this force before it participates in blowing up our democracy? Well, I think there's a sense in which it's already stopped. The nature of Murdoch's power has changed quite markedly, I think, in the last 10 years, and I would say not increased in Australia. Now, let me explain that a bit because I certainly Please. don't want to be understood as saying as everything's fine and hunky-dory and we can all go home because I don't believe that for a minute. We've just seen in the Queensland election, for example, now in Queensland, every single newspaper is owned by Rupert Murdoch, every yep. single newspaper. And they all campaigned in, you know, the most extreme and partisan fashion against Labor. And Labor had a really good win. That's not the first time we've seen that. Rod Tiffin has published research showing that sort of effect over a couple of federal elections and a brace of state elections where Murdoch has campaigned. So I think that raw vote-pulling power of the Murdoch media, you know, the, the wisdom that's been true for most of our lifetimes that you couldn't win power in Australia unless Murdoch was behind you or at least benign towards you. I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think it's been true for quite a while. Last election? Um, well, let me finish, including Sorry. the last federal election. <laughs> um, where I do think the power, as I said, I think that raw vote-pulling power is gone. But where I think the power continues and in some ways is more insidious is in the old agenda setting 
notion of the media, you know, the parameters of respectable debate. Mainstream media retains a great deal of that agenda-setting power, though it may not have that vote-pulling power. So, for example, why is it still marginally respectable to be a climate change sceptic in Australia, largely because News Corp is full of climate change sceptics? And I think that has a pervasive and destructive effect. But does, you know, Peter Credlin speaking on Sky News have the ability to put out false information without being checked? Well, she certainly puts out false information. We've seen that in a reporting of the Victorian corona response. But it doesn't get purchase in the way that Fox News apparently does in the USA. And there's again, there's a whole load of historical and cultural reasons for that, including the fact that Cable television has never taken off, really, in Australia to the extent it did in the States. In terms of the last federal election, yes, Labor was defeated, and I think there was a whole heap of reasons for that, and the Murdoch press is part of the mix. But I don't think it was necessarily the decisive factor. I think Labor had a, an absolutely woeful digital strategy. It was almost a non-existent social media and digital strategy, whereas the other side had a very good one. And I was just reading a New York Times article today about the sophistication of Biden's online strategy, which was not, you know, just about the masses. You know, Trump had it all over in terms of just raw drawing card, but it was very much about targeting key influencers, particularly women in the suburbs, on the channels where they already were. Very sophisticated strategy, which, of course, the Biden campaign is now claiming was a big factor for them. We saw nothing like that from Labor here. It's been striking me more and more that that our role as journalists is beyond under threat. It's basically listening. And, and there's sort of a bit of a question about what is our role and have we got one anymore with citizen journalism and, and direct communication experts to the public, etc.? I've always thought that it's a really critical role, but I, I just wonder whether it's dying and is there something we can do to resurrect it? And of course, you know my views on this, that to me, a journalist is defined by complying with the code of ethics, but of course, that's not real world. What do you think is the state of journalism as a profession or a trade and what we can possibly do to, to enhance it and, or even just protect it? The declining influence of Murdoch, which I've just talked about, we should be careful before we celebrate it entirely because it's also a story of decline of mainstream media yep, yep. and its influence and including, you know, good journalism. Like most stories, it's neither all good nor all bad. The role of journalism is or should be, as it always has been, to get the facts, to put them out there in whatever way you can. And of course, we have many more ways of doing that now. I have been very disappointed by the performance of the Victorian-based media in reporting in recent months where the state's been going through this extraordinary crisis, which has tried everybody, and all of the Melbourne-based media, I would say, have by and large failed to adequately serve their community through that in different ways. Give us um, the three main ways they failed. Well, I think they forgot who their audience was. It's tied in with the failure of the business model as well. It's interesting to reflect. I mean, coronavirus was reported very largely as a political story, which means, of course, you had Scott Morrison and Daniel Andrews up against each other. Just imagine if we still had health reporters. I remember <laughs> at the age when we had not one but two or three health yep. reporters. And one would have been looking more at public health and the other yep. would have been writing about miracle surgeons and, you know, miracle drugs and heroic surgeons and so on. 
I don't even know if there is a health reporter at the age anymore. And so the area that has been protected from cuts to some extent is political reporting. And so you end up with your political reporters reporting coronavirus. Now, that's part of the story. Obviously, it's part of the story, but not the main part and not the part that was most useful to Victorians in the middle of major crisis and trauma. You can't divide that from the failures of the reporting. But also, I think we saw more visibly than ever before how much our media is run from Sydney, and I would include you know, both the Herald Sun and The Age. And so you saw reporters sort of briefed to ask certain kinds of questions which were playing into a federal political agenda, largely briefed by people who didn't understand what was going on in Victoria, I thought, and I wrote about this at the time, and you know, assumed that there must be something wrong with Victorians, that we've been locked down by our Premier, and yet he was still retaining quite broad support which was just a fundamental misunderstanding, you know, at least as much a misunderstanding as the misunderstanding of Queensland coal mining communities in the last federal election. Whereas journalists seem to be prepared to admit they don't understand those communities. I didn't see much understanding from the Canberra journalists that they were misunderstanding Melbourne, but they were. You'd mentioned the health reporters. Norman Swan's attracted a huge following because of his very Radio National style, very fact-based, very analytical pieces on the National Broadcaster on the ABC. But of course, we've got education beats. We've got all those other specialist beats. They have been diluted, if not expunged, haven't they, Megan? It goes back to some of the things you were saying about putting on reporters, political reporters or journalist reporters, where in the case of the coronavirus, we needed a lot more detail about the pandemic, about the virus, about public health. Yeah, exactly. So all of those rounds or beats in the American term have, as you said, either disappeared entirely or been greatly reduced. And also a different kind of specialist, but local reporting. I mean, imagine the public housing towers lockdown if we still had the Melbourne Times. Would have been a totally different story. I wouldn't have been the only reporter there after you know, days one and two, which I was. Specialist reporting has been completely bled. I don't want to excuse all the failures of the media on the business model. You can't go anywhere in media without finding this. There are areas of media which have been more or less protected and which are still performing their functions quite well. And we've seen that with some of the investigative reporting on war crimes, for example, in the last few weeks. But that everyday, non-glamorous, non-Walkley award-winning coverage of the area has been hollowed out. And when crisis hits, we see it in a really quite elemental fashion. That's not the only thing going on, because there's also the Murdoch partisanship, which wanted to use every opportunity to take a hit at Dan Andrews. You know, I haven't seen Peter Credlin fly to Adelaide or Sydney to find out what the problems are there. But I think, you know, you're really seeing the cracks in all areas of society, including media that come through this. But to answer Margot's original question, what is the role of journalism? The hopeful signs, those media which are actually managing to hold their own or even grow in the current realm, are those which are able to persuade readers to pay for the content, some of them by putting up a paywall, some of them like The Guardian, for example, just asking people to pay. And they are the ones who are doing what Margot and I were taught was the purpose of journalism, by and large not necessarily always perfectly. Which is to bring the people's concern to the powerful and hold the powerful accountable to the people. Mainly to get the facts. Yeah. You know, there was a brief period there 12 years ago, I suppose, when everybody thought that people now wanted opinionated reporting. And people do still like that. But, you know, we can trust opinion to look after itself. There is plenty of it out there and that's largely a good thing. And it's not going away and it's a game everyone can play. And I celebrate most of that. But it's not what people are prepared to pay journalists to do. The evidence quite strongly suggests that what people are prepared to pay journalists to do 
It's like I tell my students, you know, I don't care what you think about this. I want you to be able to exercise judgment and think intelligently about it. But the point of that is not in order to be able to express your opinion. It's to find out the facts and to gain some insight and communicate that to your audience. So I think that whole area of, you know, there is no difference between journalism and opinion. I think that's an intellectual dead end. And it's not that opinion will go away. And I'm not suggesting it should. But it's not the most useful thing about journalists. Journalists can express their opinion. So can anybody else. It's not the thing that is most useful about journalists. I agree with a lot of what you said about News Limited, but I think both you and Margot are kind of underplaying the negative effect that they're having in Australian journalism. So you talked about the agenda setting aspect, which I think is really vital. They limit what we can talk about by framing things in a particular way and choosing very particular things to talk about. But what about the effect that they have within journalism itself? The flow-on effect of that is that it has the same effect on every outlet. And if anything's happened over the last, say, 20 years or so, it seems to me most news organisations, including the ABC, have been dragged. Let's not say they've been dragged to the right, but let's just say that the centre has shifted to the right so that in trying to be balanced or whatever, that actually has moved everything to the right so that we're seeing a much less diverse range of opinions across the political spectrum in the mainstream media and that News Limited is at the heart of that. Well, I agree with the first part of what you said, Tim. I talked about the way in which Murdoch has kept climate change scepticism on the agenda, whereas in most other countries, such as Europe, for example, you know, there might be argument about elements of the response, but the facts are an agreed starting point. But it's also true, as you say, that he limits what can be talked about largely by attack, both on segments of society and on individuals. So yes, I agree with you. And I don't want to suggest that I don't think Murdoch is a big problem for Australian democracy, because I think he is. But the reduction of diversity of opinion, I'm not too sure about that. You've seen new entrants such as The Guardian, for example, coming into the field, which I think have to some extent maintained that. And Twitter itself allows a huge number of views to be heard. I would agree that other platforms have come into existence. And maybe The Guardian is a good counterexample to what I was saying. And I'd agree with you on that. But I just meant within the mainstream media in general. It seems to me like outlets like former Fairfax, the nine newspapers, publish less diversity of opinion than they used to. It certainly seems to me that the ABC does. I mean, for instance, the drum has disappeared, which certainly under Jonathan Grain had a wide range of voices available to it and encouraged. That seems to have disappeared a bit. I'm not exactly sure of the nature of the influence of Murdoch in this one of it's about just generally corralling discussion and as you say using attack to limit certain sorts of discussion but there's also the employment aspect of it as well as the biggest employer of journalists in the country that's actually the abc the biggest single yeah i was going to say yeah is the, the ABC still the is ABC. probably bigger isn't mm. it as one of the main employers of journalists in the country at a time when there are fewer and fewer journalism jobs around that must in itself put a little question in journalists and editors' heads about the sort of material that they'll publish. I agree with you. It is. In terms of the ABC, I think there's a whole lot of complex things going on there, partly continued cuts to funding, 
And the drum, for example, if you mean the drum in written form, that fell victim to budget cuts. Now you could say that's still a reflection of the organisation's priorities, and I would agree with you. But the ABC's constant challenge, if it's to maintain its claim on the taxpayer, if you like, is to continue to satisfy its existing audience, which is largely people over 60 now, and also at the same time seek and retain new audiences and to do all that with reduced funding across more platforms. It's a seriously difficult job. Now, the emphasis at the moment is to try to fill places which we know from the research are huge gaps in the ABC's audiences, which is edge of urban, suburban and edge of urban audiences, which is also where you find most of your swinging seats, which is also where you find very ethnically diverse communities, hard to reach communities for all sorts of government services, including broadcasting. And I think that that is leading the ABC to very consciously turn away from its natural proclivities, which is towards people like us, you know, saving your presence, Margot, but in a urban latte sippers is the uh, stereotype. I'm more risky these days. Much more interesting. And that's often perceived as a simple left-right thing. And it can be that. I'm not saying it never is. But I think it's actually more complex than that. And again, the lack of funding, the sheer lack of funding for speciality, for local, is an inescapable part of the picture. I personally don't detect a consistent swing to the right of the ABC. I know lots of people would disagree with me. Nine, I agree with you, has gone a long way to the right. And it's interesting to observe the new editor of The Age, Gay Alcorn, who is somebody I have known for many years, and Margot's known her even longer, of course, Um, (laughs) you know, who I think, and you can comment if you want, Margot, will at some point be having a huge battle with the Sydney-based leadership of the Nine Network, which we know is close to the current government. You can see it coming over the horizon. On the other hand, Meg, the Age Newsroom revolted. It was clearly moving to the right. It was clearly being run by Sydney. They knew their masthead was destroyed. So what do they do? They go to a journalist with cast iron 100% credibility, said, can you please restore our reputation? Now, there's no way Gay's going to go in and be a front person unless she's she can take responsibility for things she's got power over. Now, I don't know the details at all of her contract, but I would have thought that that is a very positive action for restoring good journalism at Fairfax because she's a reporter's reporter. She's got Michael Bachelard under her, who's a reporter's reporter, and if they stuff her around, she'll walk. So exactly. I, I have very, very high hopes for the age, very high so hopes. So do I. And I'm not allowed to speak about gay, but I just have. <laughs> I also have high hopes for Gay's editorship, but I also suspect there to be a battle royale at some point in the next 18 months. Oh, yeah. Because I don't think they know what they've got. You know, it's another example of the Sydney leadership not understanding Melbourne. They don't understand who Gay is. They don't understand who Batch is. As I understand, Gay had to be wooed and persuaded to take the job and extracted various understandings and concessions as a result of that. So far, I mean, I see signs of distinct improvement in the age and also things which have really disappointed me as I've said Mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair to Gay, at the beginning of lockdown, she'd only literally just got into the job. So 28th of of September she started, you know, 28th of September. Yeah. 
you know, I think there are distinct signs of improvement. You know, we've just seen a hire Anika Smethurst out of the Australian as the state political reporter. That is a very positive move. When people say there are still good journalists working at the Australian, Anika's one of the people they're thinking of. It's very interesting that just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Alan Kohler leave the Australian. We've seen Anika Smethurst leave the Australian. You know, yes. a lot of good reporters are exiting, I suspect, having heard Malcolm Turnbull on Q&A calling out Paul Kelly. When are people like you're going to face up to what's going on. And Meg, that wonderful, wonderful coalition between Rudd and Turnbull. You remember the old days when Fraser and and Goff got back together in the public interest? I don't know if it was foreign ownership or Packer or something. It was Packer's. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as though in the end, the forces for for good governance and and, and a a vibrant democracy, which includes the media, are are having almost a a last-ditch stand. But it it does seem to be having a bit of an impact, doesn't it? I think News Corp are clearly rattled by it, and I think they're probably right to be. I don't think there's going to be a Royal Commission. I don't think anybody thinks that, or not in any time soon anyway. We have yet another Senate inquiry, having appeared before nearly all the Senate inquiries in the last 30 years, I must admit, to a certain element of weariness about that. Now, I think there's a few things which this Senate inquiry could bring about, which would be positive steps. I don't think it to be changing the landscape overnight or anything. And indeed, it's hard to know what to do. My understanding under Australian law is you can't force Murdoch to divest. It's not possible under Australian law. We don't have the sort of antitrust laws the states have. So I think most of the action, if a government was inclined to take action, would have to be around measures to encourage startups and diversity. And I'm on the board of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, which will be making a submission to the inquiry and which has recommended a number of such steps around tax-favourable treatment for media startups and so on. I just want to tick off on this thing about the media shifting to the right. Yes, I think Nine definitely has, and we now have a situation set up in Melbourne which could go either way, but if Gay Alcorn is still editor in two years, that will be a very good sign. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark with Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Our email address is transitzonepod at gmail.com. Whatever your questions, suggestions, critiques, email them to us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. Our guest in the zone this time is writer, journalist and media analyst Margaret Simons as we debrief together on media and journalism in 2020. I'm going through ancient history now. I remember, I think I'd just started No Fibs and you were involved in the Finkelstein Review and Labor tried to bring something up to have some sort of accountability mechanism for private sector journalism. And I remember you being viciously attacked, article after article and stalked at the university. You know, this gets back to Tim's point about intimidation. Do you remember what all that was about, that Finkelstein stuff? Because I remember fighting hard for it and you fighting hard for it and and Murdoch just sort of going, oh, you know, fuck you and Labor having to cave. Is there anything back in the past that could be future oriented? Well, yes. One of the things which I think the Senate committee could usefully recommend would be a Productivity Commission inquiry into the financial condition of the media and what should be done about it, which was one of Finkelstein's recommendations that was overlooked. That would be a genuinely useful thing. The last time the Productivity Commission looked at the media, it was only about broadcasting and use of spectrum, and that was back in 2001. And that, like every other inquiry into the media, was largely overlooked by governments. The whole thing around the Finkelstein, or the Finkers, I called them at the time, 
was part of the dying days of the Gillard government and in the end came to not very much. So Finkelstein made certain recommendations, which I actually didn't support the central recommendation, but that led to legislation being brought forward by the then Minister for Communications, Stephen Conroy, which went to another Senate committee inquiry, which I appeared before, and then died in the Parliament. The heart of what Conroy was trying to do was to make the journalist exemption from the Privacy Act contingent on being part of a self-regulation scheme that met certain standards, which I thought was a good idea. Me too. But went nowhere. What gives us the right to have this privileged role in a democracy when we are not accountable at all for our ethics and our conduct? Well, I don't think it's true to say we're not accountable at all. I mean, Apart from defamation law. No, I've been saying for years that I don't think there's adequate accountability for journalism in Australia, but I wouldn't go so far as to say we're not accountable at all. I think Twitter has been a a real lift in media accountability. It's one one of the most useful things about it. There is defamation law. Defamation laws are some of the most severe and chilling in the Western world. There is an increasing brace of national security legislation, which has further chilling effects. There is the Australian Press Council, which I am no fan of and haven't been for many years, but it is better now than it was 10, 15 years ago, largely thanks to Julian Disney's reforms attempts. The ABC, of course, has an exhaustive and very yes. accountable complaints process, which we're about to see play out exhaustively, I suspect, yep. in relation to uh, the minister's questioning. There is a broadcasting code of conduct, which is being used increasingly often. And of course, cable TV largely avoids that, which is a significant thing to watch. So, you know, there are many accountability measures. I mean, if you talk to journalists like Nick McKenzie, for example, he will tell you he spends at least a day of each working week dealing with legal and other kinds of accountability as a result of his investigative reporting. And sometimes it's two or three days of the whole week. So, you know, you can't listen to that sort of thing for the kind of journalism that really does matter and then say journalists aren't accountable at all. On the other hand, if you follow my Twitter sphere, you'll see I've been a getting annoyed in the last week about a lot of inaccurate reporting about the Victorian Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, which yep. remains uncorrected. And that was all media. It, in fact, you know, in that case, Murdoch was no worse and no better than nine. Meg, a few times now Twitter's come up and it's obviously become a bit of a staging ground for this notion of the way journalism has changed and the role of the audience in the relationship in the news relationship. And it's become quite fraught on a number of occasions. There's clearly something of a standoff sometimes between journalists and that part of their audience, as it appears on Twitter. So thinking about those sorts of issues, what do you think is the one thing or the key thing that critics of journalism get wrong or fail to understand when they engage in those sorts of discussions? Well, it's hard to generalise, Tim, because, you know, I think there's all sorts of issues and different issues apply to different groups of the audience. The biggest thing is what I'm after. Well, I think they make things personal too often. Quite often they will go a particular journalist, like at the moment there's a bit of a campaign against these sales and so on. I think usually the personal attacks, there are exceptions, but usually the personal attacks completely miss the point. Journalists are pretty good at returning the favour though, aren't they? They they personalise it too. Some are, and some are and some never respond. You know, you've never seen David Spears respond, for example, except in defence of other journalists. I never respond to attacks on me. Yeah, me neither. Most journalists don't respond to personal attacks, but the personal attacks are both obnoxious in themselves, but also miss the point, usually. I mean, there are exceptions to that, usually. 
they missed the point. Is the issue like we should be directing the criticism at structural matters rather than individual journals? Is that what you mean? Look, I think you can pick a journalist up on a particular error. If a journalist has made an error, either of fact or judgment, I think you can challenge the journalist on that judgment. But the sorts of criticism I see are, oh, everybody knows Lee Sales is just a stooge for Scott Morrison. Well, that's just bullshit. I mean, anybody who knows Lee Sales or has watched her careers knows that's complete horseshit. When Nick McKenzie broke the story on branch stacking in Victorian Labour, everybody's saying, oh, he's just, you know, he's just um, a tool of the Liberal Party, completely forgetting this is the same journalist who broke the mobster and the lobster story about Matthew Guy. I mean, you know, it's just bullshit. And that is ignorant and intellectually lazy criticism which misses the point as well as being obnoxious. But Um, there is an aspect of technique and interviewing technique, particularly where you see, including ABC journalists, use Liberal Party talking points to frame their questions, to use a talking point as a given in the way they frame questions. The best example is Fran Kelly on Radio National using retirement tax over and over again during the last federal election. Okay, well, I'm going to stick with what I was talking about, Peter, before I take up your point. There are... Structural issues, which I think many among the Twitterati don't get. I think the cuts to journalism are largely invisible to them and the devastating impact, for example, during a pandemic of not having a specialist health reporter in Victoria. None. None. That is invisible. You know, it's hard to point out what isn't there anymore. The impact of not having any reporters covering our edge of urban areas. So we don't really know. Those of us who live in the inner suburbs and don't get out there much don't really know what's happening there or what's going on there. And so all of us tend to guess at that. And I think what Tim's observing in the ABC is often an attempt to guess at that. Whether it's right or wrong, we can discuss. If you haven't lived through it yourself with it as your occupation, it's hard to see that and hard to understand the devastating impact of that. The fact that reporters who used to have the luxury of writing one story every two days in an area of speciality are quite often now having to write four or five stories. And yes, they adopt all sorts of time-saving and sometimes lazy techniques to get around that. Events like the Dan Andrews press conference become the story rather than a means of getting an element of the story. All of that is happening and the impact of the economics of the collapse of the business model is everywhere in that. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions. Peter just said Frank Kelly uses Liberal Party talking points to frame her questions. Well, sometimes it's not always wrong to do that. I think it is a problem when you start using a little bit of a slogan as a given within the framing of your questions and in the framing of your copy. Retirement tax was clearly a slogan, but we heard Fran Kelly and it happens with Lee Sales as well. They use those talking points and it plops into the discourse as a given, not as a, as a propaganda slogan. I'm hearing a lot of that. Mm. I don't entirely agree, but, you know, it's an observation. You know, I think the extent to which newsrooms have been hollowed out, you know, it's devastating, devastating. Yeah. Yep. Nobody's got firm figures on this, which is one of the reasons the Productivity Commission inquiry would be a good idea. But the best figures we've got are in the ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry report last year, which talks about a 20% drop in the numbers of journalists since 2014 at a time when population was increasing, well ahead of that, and at a time when some journalists were having to be employed just on the technologies because of the ever-expanding number of platforms and the production requirements of those platforms. And they have very good measurements there on the reduction in the numbers of stories on things like local government, things like health and science. You know, it's fallen off a cliff. 
an absolute cliff. And that is a long-term story. And just like every other area of society, we have a crisis thrown at us, the first of several, I suspect, and all those cracks are suddenly starkly visible. It doesn't excuse all of the problems with the media. In terms of the impact of News Corp on journalist jobs, which Tim asked me about earlier, and I don't think I got to answer it. Yes, it's huge, absolutely huge, because it's one of the biggest employers. But I think it has been very interesting in the last five years to see the numbers of people who have left News Corp and who has left News Corp. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that a lot of good journalists, including ones who might have personal sympathies for the current government, have decided it's no longer sustainable to do journalism within that organisation. And that trend has picked up remarkably in the last year, despite the denuded job market. So, you know, that is changing. But yes, of course, it's a factor and has been historically a big factor. So, Meg, you're someone who tries to imagine a future and everything. So we know that we've got no rounds people, we've got no people on the ground, we've got no business model, blah, blah, blah. You know, well, I've tried it in my own way, sort of a bit of aggregation, bring in citizen journalism and ask them to swear by the Media Reliance Ethics Bible. What excites you at the moment in terms of experiments in the media to try and plug the holes and, and find a sustainable model to record what's happening in the world and bring audiences to that? Well, not much. <laughs> um, I'm probably more gloomy about the media now than I have ever been in my career, I have to say, but yeah. I am by Me nature too. an optimist. I do take the willingness of people to pay for good journalism as an encouraging sign. It will never replace the rivers of gold. It's not enough, but it is an encouraging sign. And what people will pay for is an encouraging sign. I am involved myself in an experiment, which I can't talk too much about yet, which is really trying to address the news deserts that have emerged, which are local. You know, if we talk about national and international reporting, while they've been affected in the way I've tried to outline, the, the deserts that are already with us are rural, regional and suburban. Which COVID has accelerated. Particularly edge of urban, which is where the story of our nation is playing out, really, out of sight of virtually all media, and that is part of the story behind the ABC's changes. They are really trying to address that, which I think is the right thing to do. I'm not quite sure they know what they're doing, but I think the, you know, I don't think the aim is wrong. So, you know, I think there is a great potential in local, which is at the moment virtually deserted. I mean, there are mastheads out there, but there aren't any journalists. And I think there's some potential in, in there. The fact that government is engaged in this area is positive. Like I remember during the Finkelstein inquiry, which you mentioned earlier, which is not that long ago, if you mentioned to News Corp or to what was then Fairfax, any suggestion of government support for journalism, and they would absolutely spit chips, you know, big change, you know, will erode the freedom of the media. That has changed completely. Now, everybody wants them to force Google and Facebook to pay. Everybody is open to ideas about messing around with the tax system, which is something that the Public Interest Journalism Initiative has suggested. So there's been a huge change there and a recognition, I think. I mean, when the ACCC said in that Digital Platforms Inquiry report, journalism is a public good, that's the first time any government body has said that. And so I think there is long-term hope in that. You know, I still teach and I see a lot of hope in the young people I teach who are smart, dedicated, well-motivated, talented, and the good ones do find jobs in journalism. They are there. One day I'll activate the chip I implanted them all and take over the media. <laughs> um, you know, so I do think there's hope. 
But I have to say, you know, having lived through Melbourne's recent trauma and seen the media get it so wrong, that has actually made me particularly gloomy at the moment. I'm usually an optimist. Meg, as you well know, we're seeing a real valley in the relationship between Australia and the People's Republic of China. Now, you had the advantage of spending some time in China. You've done research into Chinese journalism, Chinese newsrooms, etc. I really want to hear your thoughts, your insights into what you're observing against that backdrop of a totalitarian, pretty repressive People's Republic of China, their way of doing propaganda, their way of doing media, social media and journalism. What insights do you have about what's happening between China and Australia at the moment? Yes. Well, I think it's tragic. I mean, among the students I teach, of course, are many Chinese students. The best of the Chinese students are as good as any you'll ever encounter. Amazing people. It's a subject of considerable grief to me and to them that relations between our countries are so low at the moment. But many of the journalists who I went and travelled the length and breadth of China and interviewed journalists in newsrooms all over China, and many of them are no longer able to do their journalism or to talk. Things have deteriorated a great deal for journalism in China just since I was last there. I think the last time I was there was about four or five years ago. But there is some interesting things about journalism in China. When I was there, WeChat, the dominant Chinese social media platform, was commissioning journalists. They didn't always call it journalism. Sometimes they called it travel writing or history writing or something. But it was, you know, they were employing journalists, including some who'd been to jail, you know, journalists who had a history of real edgy and investigative journalism. And they were publishing it. And they had a network called Penguin, which was a riff on the um, symbol of the company. This is Tencent. And they were actively supporting journalists. Now, I think that is the next step for social media, whether it's Twitter and Facebook or whether it's whatever follows them. For most of their lives, they have strenuously resisted any suggestion that they were publishers with all the responsibilities and social licenses and so on of publishers. But just this last year or two, we have seen them take on the responsibility for tackling misinformation. And of course, we feel good when it's Trump and we feel slightly less good perhaps when it's Scott Morrison um, and WeChat. But nevertheless, it's a big shift for the social media to actually take responsibility for what is circulated on their platforms. The next natural step is for them to hire journalists. And that will be a kind of power the like of which we have never seen before. It will make Rupert Murdoch look puny. And it could be good and it could be bad and it will probably be a bit of both. If they employ journalists, they have to say they're a publisher. Yeah, you know, but they already are. It affected oh, them. I mean, they course. won't say it in public forums. Yeah. But they, the the minute they said yes, we are responsible for what's circulating on our platforms, they accepted that they are publishers, whether or not they actually are saying that yet. That's the reality of it. There was a legal case, oh, two or three years back, where the Supreme Court, I think it was New South Wales, said that the Sydney Morning Herald was responsible for the comments on their Facebook page, and you go, well, look, you know. The collapse business model, we've, now we've got to moderate comments on Facebook. Meanwhile, Facebook earns another billion trillion. I mean, it, it, it can't go on, can it? it? It can't go on. Well, you know, as I say, I'm not saying this is necessarily all good or all bad, but in response to the government's attempts to make them pay for using media content, we have already seen Google very proactively cut deals with smaller independent publishers such as the Schwartz Group and Eric Beecher's Group. They're really getting very actively involved. And WeChat, which I suspect will be the dominant media platform of the future, WeChat has been doing it for years, commissioning content. I think if we were having this conversation in 10 years' time, we will be talking about them as publishers of journalism. You'd have to say that if that happens, then a lot of conventional 
legacy media organisations just cease to exist? Because how are they going to compete? There's a number of potential models. It may be that Google increases its partnership model, which, as I say, they're already doing with smaller independent publishers in Australia. So it may be, you know, a collaborative partnership model. It may be that we all become freelancers, but our main client is Google or Facebook or whatever follows them. I think, you know, there will be something else. I don't think we'll still be talking about Google and Facebook necessarily. Or it may be that they actually run big newsrooms or some combination of all of that. So it may be more of an ecosystem than a competition, Tim. We're already seeing this trend, though, where it's sort of a winner-takes-all situation under the current model where a couple of big names are emerging internationally quite successfully, like the New York Times, The Guardian, who, as you say, the revenue from subscription doesn't replace the revenue from classified advertising by any stretch of the imagination. But to the extent that those models, those new models of subscription are being successful, it's big brands that are doing well. I guess you could say something like the Saturday paper within its niche is doing really well. But I think in your article in Inkle the other day talking about readership figures, you mentioned that something like the Saturday paper doesn't even register on those conventional measures. That's how small they are. So the really successful ones are those big names like The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist, The Financial Times, to some extent, The Wall Street Journal. You've got a consolidation within that legacy media group. And then Maybe what you're saying is that if there's sort of collaborations with the big social media platforms, that that's a way of growing new. I think for national and international, and maybe, you know, in our context for state-based, that's the way of the future. I'm less confident about state-based. But, you know, I suspect it's not an answer for local. Um, And local really matters because every, you know, it's a cliche of the newsroom, I'm afraid, but every story is local. You know, every single story plays out in schools and hospitals and neighbourhood streets. The affairs of the nation are the affairs of local aggregated, by and large. The solution for local, I suspect, has to be different. It may be part of an ecosystem that includes social media with modified algorithms to reflect local audience. But it's certainly not there yet. Nobody has got a solution for local. And this is part of the story of America as a divided nation as well. Yes, You know, all those Midwestern towns that have turned to the QAnons and the social media platforms no longer have a local newspaper which is serving up regular, relevant information which people kind of trust because they know enough to know that they've got it right and they probably know the reporter or at least one of them that's not there anymore in america now australia is a less regionalized society but it's not there for us either and so you have win for example which is now carrying sky news for free yeah meaning that rural australia is getting a totally different media diet from what we get in the city and the main counter to that is the abc and i'm frankly much more concerned that the abc remains relevant and interesting to those audiences that I am it continuing to satisfy inner suburban lefties. I don't think the ABC is wrong about that. As I say, I'm not quite sure they know what they're doing all the time, but the impetus for it is not necessarily wrong in terms of the national interest. One of the little things I've noticed during the COVID, and you know, as you know, regional and local newspapers have just collapsed during COVID, gone. I truly believe that hard copy is not dead, that that whole bringing community together on local news, people want it. There's just some some funny little green shoots, which you think if there was a, a bit of philanthropic money to give it a hand, could bring it back. Have you got any hope 
for that, that community demand might actually want to save these local papers? Yes, I papers? think I have a lot of hope for that. One of the recommendations of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative is that philanthropic donations to journalism become tax-deductible, DDR status. And while that would have relevance for outlets such as The Guardian, which is already making use of a scheme that I set up actually when I was at Melbourne Uni to get some philanthropic donations, I think the most powerful application will be local. It will be local philanthropists supporting their local media outlet. We already see evidence of that when all those local papers fell over. There were a number of outlets started on a not-for-profit basis, supported by local business and so on. So I think there is huge potential for that, and I'm hoping that that's one of the recommendations the Senate inquiry will make, although it will probably be ignored. One of the things about COVID is you, you really hone in on your home, and I just wonder whether people who've made it big elsewhere might might put a bit of money into keeping their, their home paper alive. There's great potential for different kinds of community activism, including philanthropy around that. And, you know, I suspect that is the answer for local, if there is an answer for local. We mm. better hope there is because, you know, the fact that Sky News is now on win really frightens me. Oh, me too. You know, if we talk, me too. If we talk about the potential for a divided nation like the States, that's yep. where it lies. And yep. the antidote to that is the extent to which the ABC also remains relevant to those audiences. That's where the real battle's happening. Meg, last time you and I had a recorded conversation about the future of journalism and all things media and journalism, I put to you something about podcasting, and at that stage it was really exploding. Since we had that conversation for Inside Story magazine, it's got even bigger. Recent research from Reuters at Oxford said that there's been a real uptick during covid in daily news podcasts, it is an extraordinary beast, the whole podcasting phenomenon around the world. How do you see podcasting now, part of oracy rather than literacy, fitting into the mediascape? And is there a real role for that in some of the things we've just been talking about for local news and local journalism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, podcasting was fascinating when it started and has only become more so. I must admit I was a bit slow to accept it was more than just radio delivered differently, but I actually think there is a big difference. Yes. Um, hard to sum up quite what it is, but you know it's clear that it is there. I think we're still discovering what it's best used for, when people listen to it and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I think it's hugely significant new media form. You know, I mean, we are rapidly approaching the time when terrestrial broadcasting will stop, when all what we now call broadcasting will be delivered online. Podcasting fits well into that and is kind of ahead of the game. Particularly with the younger demographic, more on-demand, more non-scheduled consumption of news. Yeah. And almost also like listen, audio publishing. And you listen to a podcast when you're doing other things. You know, I went for my morning walk through the Flemington Estate this morning just before the rain set in. You know, I was listening to The Daily, which, you know, I do regularly and I listen to heaps of other podcasts. You've mentioned Norman Swan. You know, what an enormous public service that has been, Coronacast. I'm glad, so glad he won the Walkley or his team won the Walkley, particularly in those early days in March when it was by no means clear that the federal government was going to get it. And to their credit, they did. But that was just an immense public service and the epitome of what good journalism is. One thing the ABC is doing, which I'm kind of relieved to see, I mean, we've got these sort of icons of the ABC, such as Norman Swan, such as Anthony Green, And it's good to see them anticipating their retirement and training up, you know, the Casey Briggs and and the Tracy Norman sidekick on Coronacast. It's good to see the ABC actually thinking strategically about making sure that those guys don't retire and leave a vacuum. Meg, a final question. The word trust hasn't really been 
forefront today in our discussion, which I thought it would be more, actually. But as we all sit here and look at what's happening in the United States as we speak, that great riven republic, the dual realities, if you like, and the struggle of journalism, public interest journalism particularly, to deal with the Trump phenomenon, where does trust now fit in the whole rubric of journalism and public interest journalism? Is there any hope for trust? It's central. It's absolutely central. You so know, there people, is. people may click on clickbait, but they won't pay for things that they don't trust. And that applies to the ABC, for which we pay through our taxes, of course, and it applies to every other media outlet. So people trusted local because it had enough connection with their daily lived lives for them to be able to sort of verify it or authenticate it in the broad, if not a particular story. We know more now about what Donald Trump did last night than we know about what happened up the street. Yep. And so the capacity for trust to be hollowed out because of that lack of relevance to our local and lived lives is huge. But no, trust is absolutely central. And, you know, optimistically, the traditional values of journalism, the reason why journalists might be handy people to have around, actually haven't changed very much at all. Business model has collapsed, but the crisis is in the business model, not in the hunger for what journalists do. Meg Simons, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you as we draw to the end of 2020 here in the Transit Zone. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Our guest in this edition of The Transit Zone, Margaret Simons, writer, journalist and media analyst researcher. We'll put a link to her website in the text for this podcast. Meg has many publications and writes continually on the sort of topics and themes we explored, at least partially, with her here today in The Transit Zone. Well, fascinating stuff there, Tim. It's just amazing to think about not just journalism, but the media generally. I guess you notice that Warner Brothers has decided now to simultaneously stream and put it to cinemas, its 2021 product. I think we're seeing huge changes in cinema as well as media generally coming directly out of COVID. I think that's right, Peter. In other areas too, I'm doing some work at the moment with various performing arts groups, talking to them about um, how they use streaming as part of their arsenal and a way of monetizing their product. Even as we go back into kind of a more normalised situation, the performing arts are particularly affected in terms of having audiences within a closed space. And I, I don't think they're ever going to not use online now as a way of creating content. What I'm talking to them about is to try and not make the same mistakes that journalism made, not recognise that if you do that, that it's, it is a rather different product to what you're normally producing, that it creates a different relationship with an audience. It even creates the ability to have quite a different audience online to that that would go to the theatre to watch a ballet or a play or a musical theatre piece or something like that. And therefore, you need very particular skills. You can't just do it as a throwaway add-on thing. As Margot will tell you with Sydney Morning Herald, you know, Web Diary was put over in a corner and kind of ignored because they didn't understand online at all. I'd really like performing arts organisations and others not to make that sort of mistake and marginalise online. If they're going to do it, they have to embrace it. But not only that, Tim, when WebDory was very successful and came to prominence, they said, oh, fuck, we haven't got control. We better shut it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Idiots. There were some bad decisions made <laughs> at that period, perhaps understandably given how new it was. Oh, there no, was... They, they were just idiots. Like, I'll give you one other example. Idiots, yeah. um, okay. The, the Fin Review had something called Trading Room, where you could look at your stocks and, and et cetera. 
they were right. perfectly placed to go straight into online trading and be a new something like domain. Oh no, let's have a budget cut. Let's close the fucker down. It was just crazy. They they spent big and then they they cut big. Tim and Margot, this is our final trio trains its own podcast for 2020. And my mind, as you're speaking, Tim's going back over some of our themes, of course, performing arts. We did a podcast on that. Nothing has got much better there, apart from some of the work you're doing, of course, and discovery of online solutions to some of their challenges. Of course, we talked about food. We've alluded to the design. We've talked about shopping, and that's certainly changed during coronavirus world, hasn't it? I don't think that's going to go backwards either. School and education has shifted fundamentally, even though kids are back in schools. Online learning has taken a big change in in people's minds with parents and kids themselves. So there have been a lot of changes, and now we're still trying to discern what is going to be permanent and what's going to just snap back. Remember that term snap back we started off with way back in... uh, in March sometime, Tim, the, the, the snapback. I'm not very encouraged by what I'm seeing from the Morrison government at the moment, are you? I just think they're, they're not taking the opportunities. They're not reading the room very well at all in terms of where people may want to go over the next few months, particularly in terms of the economy, in terms of the precariat, in terms of young people and their opportunities. I'm, I'm very discouraged by what I'm seeing there. I don't know about you. I think they're doubling down on a lot of the divisions that have been exposed by COVID. I mean, it's been a hell of a year, hasn't it? I mean, put aside everything else, it really has just shown up a lot of the divides in society between rural and city, between rich and poor, between people with secure employment and insecure employment. And it just seems to me a lot of the stuff that the Morrison government's doing, like the announcement today of speculating about new IR laws and stuff like that, is as likely to increase casualisation as it is to do anything else. And that's exactly what the pandemic has revealed, certainly in certain key industries. We need far less insecurity. We don't want people having six jobs to make ends meet who then get infected with a disease and go to six other workplaces, you know? We, we should be trying to fix those cracks rather than double down on them. And look, I think we're in for a pretty interesting 2021. It'll be an election year towards the end of the year, probably. There's a lot of arguments to be had about the direction we go, and I'm not at all convinced that our current government is forward-thinking enough to really respond to the challenges that have been thrown up by this really amazing year that we've just been through. And Scott Morrison's just an Australian version of Trump in his own marketing sort of way. I mean, imagine a a Labor government confronted with this and and the things that they, they could have done to address equality. You know, they certainly wouldn't have said, you know, take out your super and then we won't give you a super increase so that you'll be destitute forevermore and we won't give you a wage climate change, lots of lots of areas. But anyway, life goes on and um, I'm just so grateful that um, we got together and did this due to COVID and got to know each other face to face. And I really hope that we come back come back next year because it's um, it's a very enjoyable part of my life. So thank you both yes. very much for well, letting well, this happen. Well, thank you too. Um, and I, I just want to pay a little tribute to Peter too because this would not have been possible at all without his technical expertise and the hours and hours he puts into editing and making sure that our sound works and all that sort of stuff, all the technical side of things, which we couldn't have done without him. So thank you very much for all that work. A final thought, and this is going right back to our very early podcast, may have been podcast number one, where Margot talked about home. The big thing that changed for me during coronavirus world is my sense 
of home. I've spent so long at home now and I think my whole psychology shifted. I see the world from a very home lens these days. And working from home obviously is one of the big shifts within our society. But just as a quick final comment from both of you, how does home seem to you these days? I lost my home and I left my home state, though I will always be a Queenslander. I want to be close to my best friends. And so I've um, chosen to live in a deep national party, dairy farming turned avocado village. And to me, I'm sort of really looking forward to it because I've never really had a home community. Dad was an engineer and we went different places and I've always been a loner and I'm really looking forward to working out what community is and how I can be a a positive force in my local community. I'm really looking, really looking forward to that. As Meg said, it's it's a very, very conservative electorate with pockets of other things happening and, and big picture. With COVID, we are already seeing it. The prices in regional towns are going up. People are moving from city country, which will change the dynamic of the regions. And so I think it could be um, quite an exciting place to spend my third age or whatever it is. I have slightly mixed feelings about this, and I guess it's because um, we have a son who's living in France. um, And the fact that we can't just, and he can't just travel easily between our two countries has made us feel quite isolated. And it's somewhat concerning, especially given that he's in a country that hasn't handled COVID as well as our country has. One of the lovely things has been having my wife at home. She's been working from home all this time, and that's been great just to watch her work. She's like, she's so amazing, and uh, which I kind of knew, but it's, it's good to see it firsthand. That thing about having a, a member of the family overseas and having restrictions in place about how we're able to see each other. Having said that, I've got to say, I don't think any of us would have got through this year without the sort of technology that we're using now. To be able to go online and speak face-to-face with people who you were physically distant from. Imagine if we were doing this in the 1990s and it was all trunk calls and shit like that. You know, it, just, it would have been completely unbearable. So I'm actually very grateful for this sort of communication technology that we've got these days. Well, for me, I guess I'm very predictable, aren't I? We had our pandemic baby arrive in mid-August. <laughs> She's growing apace. She's 16 weeks old now. She's already making the sort of sounds where you can see language just pouring out of her. She's already breaking sounds up into little morphemes or proto-morphemes. She engages with you with her voice and her eyes, her perky little physical body. She is just (laughs) so wonderful to see how humans develop. So that's been our pandemic blessing, aren't we? That's right. That's fantastic. uh, My first granddaughter. So my sense of home, she lives just down the road. She was born at home. That's my centre now for the next months probably, uh, probably years, yeah, for sure. as as we grow up with our granddaughter, lots of stories to tell, lots of toys to play with, and lots of childhood to revisit with our granddaughter. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Margot. Happy New Year to you. See you Thank in you. 2021, and goodness knows what that's bringing down the track. Happy Year Thanks, of Serenity. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Margot. Thanks, Peter. See you later. Bye. Don't forget our email address here in the Transit Zone, transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, with Margo Kingston near Wingham on the mid-north coast of New South Wales and Tim Dunlop in Southbank, Melbourne. We all look forward to welcoming you back soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving 
the transit zone.